Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think, and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media, and also I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Salaf Lodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about female sexuality in Pakistan. And before I get into it, I want to make a few things very clear. One is that I'm not giving any type of medical advice. So if you're having any questions about your health, please speak with your healthcare provider. And I'm definitely not giving any type of religious advice. If you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your family neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So I am super excited to have on with me today, Dr. Sakina Jangar. And uh, Dr. Jangar, I am going to let you introduce yourself to the viewers and the audience that may not know you. Hi, thank you for inviting me. I am Sakina Jangar. I am a professor at St. John's University in New York City. My PhD is in communication studies with an emphasis on rhetoric and language, and that's also what I teach at the university. Most of my research is on Muslim feminism, especially in Pakistan. And I know you found me recently because I published a paper on some condom ads that were initially banned and then reinstated for late night programming. Yes. And um, so thank you for inviting me. Yes. No, thank you. And thank you for your time. I know you're on break, so I really appreciate your time. So I definitely want to get into the heart of the matter because I'm so, so curious. And yes, I found your... So what happened is that I am on social media. And um, for those that don't know, my Instagram and TikTok handle are at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN. And there was another person that I follow... Habiba Kande. I don't know if you know who he is. Yep. Okay. So he had posted the article because I think you had quoted him uh, or at least his book. Uh, I believe it was Women of Desire and um, and A Taste of Honey, both of them. A Women of Desire is a smaller version of A Taste of Honey. And so anyways, um, you had, I think, quoted some excerpts from his book. And so he had posted that. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. Let me see what this is all about. So uh, please tell us all about what you did, your research, and what made you get into this? 
Wow. What made me get into this? <laughs> yes, we're all excited and so curious to know. <laughs> well, so the story starts when like I first came to the United States 30 years ago. I was just a young girl, 19 years old, and I was a rebel in Karachi where I grew up. But then when I came here, I just found like there wasn't really a place for me and white feminism. And I didn't understand all of this until I went to grad school. I just thought I wasn't a feminist because I didn't seem to have the same goals and strategies as white women. And uh, I didn't really understand until I went to grad school and I realized that, oh, I am a feminist, but it's just that my my faith and my background sort of leads me in different directions. And that's when I started thinking that I need to write more about this topic. And I've been exploring the subject of Muslim women's agency and our feminism through many research articles. Um, some of my best known work is on Benazir Bhutto. I wrote about her as a willful woman. And, um, you know, to create this counter archive of uh, the media has created this archive of Muslim women as oppressed by our faith and by our religion. So I'm creating a counter archive of that. Um, yeah, some, we are oppressed, but we're all, that's not the full story. We're also like fighting for our rights. Oh, and, so interesting. Um, now I was going to mention another paper that has gotten some attention is if you remember at the 2016 democratic national convention, there was a Pakistani couple on stage. And the woman, Ghazala Khan, was silent, where, whereas her husband was like flashing the Constitution at Donald Trump and asking him if he's even read it. And she was silent. And the, the news coverage was that she's oppressed. And I was curious about her silence. So in my research paper, I did an interpretation of her silence and her dupatta, her scarf. And, uh, you know, silent agency is not always expressed in words and by showing skin. And that's where my piece of Muslim feminism comes in, that agency can also be expressed in silence and by wearing a scarf. That's great. So, you know, I would I would counter that. I'm sure people you know, we'll, t we'll say to you that Muslim women are not oppressed and that a lot of times it's the interpretation of the religion and the culture that interprets that religion that oppresses the women as opposed to the religion itself. What would you counter to that? Oh, I would agree with that. I think that there is a lot of rereading of scripture from a feminist lens. Right. So people are actually going back to the scripture and reading it for themselves rather than taking the androcentric patriarchal readings that we have received. And we realize that um, culturally there are practices which are not necessarily in the faith. Right. And those, those practices have resulted in women's oppression. But regardless, you know, that's not the full story. Is Absolutely. our... You know, there are injustices, yes, but that's not the full story. I think the media wants to show that that's the whole story. And I'm saying, wait, there are some nuances. There are women fighting back and taking extreme risks to um, have so that women can have more rights. Yeah, in absolutely. Culture. Yeah, I like that. So, you know, I, I would agree with you because I think that, you know, oftentimes, at least what I have seen, and I'm not a scholar in, you know, feminism by any means, 
But um, I would say that oftentimes I see the interpretation of the scriptures or um, the way that it's implemented, right? And or the way that it's practiced rather. And um, I think that people take that to mean that Muslim women are oppressed or that we don't have a voice. And I would say that that's not the case. And it's not, most times it is not the women um, sorry, it's not the religion, but it is the culture that really, uh-huh. you know, uh, interprets the right. religion to serve their own needs. And, um, you know, the culture is the one that and I think that oftentimes we don't, we we may know that and sometimes even, you know, people that are Pakistani or um, of other descent do not realize that it's a culture and that there's a distinction between the culture and the religion and what the religion is saying, and what the culture is saying. And um, I think that you really have to make that distinction when you see something or when you see perhaps some oppression or whatever, uh, women's uh, voices being stifled, that it's really not um, Islam, but it's really the culture. And so I really want our viewers to take that away because I think that that is a very important dis- uh, distinction. I was going to say that cultural practices vary. Yes. And that's why it's important to have that nuanced view that Islam is not a monolithic religion, that Islam is practiced differently in different communities. And um, so there is like this flattening that sometimes takes place in how Muslim women are present- represented in the media as if we all have the same beliefs or the same practices. But in fact, that there are many nuances. And in my field, especially, there's hardly any literature on Pakistani women. If there is something on Muslim women, a lot has been written on Middle Eastern women. But, Mm. you know, like our culture is very different from the Middle East. We are South Asian, our history and our laws are different. And Pakistan is the second most populous Muslim nation. So that's like a, a big thing that people don't know how we actually practice feminism in our country, that our country is more like a faith-based feminism where women are reinterpreting scripture and they're asking for the rights that are given to them guaranteed it's not like um a congress met and said oh now you have this right like these rights were guaranteed by by god yeah and women are rereading that and claiming those rights for themselves and so they're finding empowerment through faith not necessarily secular empowerment it's fantastic. I love that. So um, now, definitely, let's get into what the big controversy was, because I am so curious. So I went ahead and I looked up some of those ads and I was like, <laughs> what the heck are they doing? They're so it was confusing. And I think for a country like Pakistan, you know, just to kind of I don't know. So why, why don't you go ahead? Why don't you explain the ads? Because the people, the viewers are probably like, what the heck is she talking about? What, what ads? Yeah, so um, there was the ad campaign by Josh, not Josh, sorry, Josh. Josh means passion in Urdu. And there was an ad campaign in which they used the supermodel Matira to um, show that women will ask for sex if they have, if you remove the unwanted consequences of by using condoms and you prevent unwanted pregnancy and STDs, then they'll have 
more of a zest for sex and they'll ask for it. Mm-hmm. And in the ads we see, you know, in the, some of the ads that I analyzed that there's a couple that they're moving and they're unpacking boxes. And uh, when the woman expresses that she's tired, the guy's looking for his the teapot to make some tea for his wife. And instead, you know, she hints that she has something else in mind, something a little cooling. And then you have like a menthol condom packet being flashed on the screen. So these are the kind of ads. And then I was like, okay, so the, when the campaign was aired, uh, people complained about, about it. And they said that the ads were indecent and against religious values and cultural values. And the Media Regulation Authority, um, it's PEMRA. I'm not really sure what it stands for, P-E-M-R-A. They banned the ads. And they said they'd received complaints and these violate some of the norms of our culture and they pulled them off the air. But then they realized that there is a national mandate for birth control. So they said, okay, we'll reinstate the ads, but they'll be for late night programming. So then I got curious as to what was indecent. Like when I watch the ads, they're a little bit cringy. (laughs) They're so cringy. I was like, what? What the heck? That makes no sense. Yeah, so, but I I couldn't, I was trying to find, like, what is indecent about it, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the re- the analysis part of it, the researcher in me. And, I, you know, in our culture, we value women being covered, modesty. And all of the women in the ads were either wearing traditional shalvar kameez and dupatta, or even if they're wearing Western clothing, they're fully covered. So, okay, so they're not dressed indecent. And then they're not showing people in nightclubs or any sort of activity that the conservative people would frown on. They're showing married heterosexual couples frequently with children or doing domestic activities. So, okay, so then it meets the requirement of decency of attire. It meets sex within marriage criteria. Then what is indecent about it? that people are complaining. And the themes that emerged in my analysis is that they present a view of Muslim women or Pakistani Muslim women in which women are demanding sex for pleasure rather than submitting to their husband's needs, like pleasure versus duty. And I think that doesn't sit very well with people because, you know, in Pakistan, we sort of, uh, value women the the most value a woman has is when she's a mother yeah and so the maternal aspect is always emphasized in birth control campaigns if you remember the previous campaign in which they said like mm. two kids are best mm. and those ads are not banned those ran and ran and ran like we grew up listening to those ads so um when women take control of their pleasure and femininity is being redefined, not just for maternal reasons, but also as in women want pleasure or they can demand it, they can take charge of it, they can enjoy it. Those were the things that don't sit well with some people and they they saw that as indecent. Mm-hmm. So that made me curious. And then the, the three themes that emerged from it was not only sexual pleasure, but sexual agency, that women are asking for it. 
and they're enjoying it and not just submitting to it because it makes their husbands happy or because it's a way to make babies. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too. I mean, definitely the commercials were very cringy, <laughs> but um, I was, I was rather, I guess even I was a little bit surprised that in those commercials, they were really advocating for the woman to take over and, uh, and really advocate for her own pleasure. Or there's that one commercial of that same condom company that they show a woman calling a repairman. <laughs> was so <laughs> weird i have not seen that one <laughs> yes it's like that so it's like the same company same condom company and she call she keeps calling the repairman like every day you know he's coming he's fixing it it's and you it, but they don't show you what he's fixing and then at the end of the commercial of course when they you know flash those condoms they show you the bed and that the bed has been broken <laughs> i was like Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I would say that they were definitely cringy, but, um, but on the other hand, you know, it's really interesting because I've never, you know, when I think of, um, I guess I would just say based on what I know, you know, just growing up and things like that is, you know, Pakistani women and I'm a Pakistani woman. Um, and that, you know, the, the, first and foremost, right? Nobody ever talks about sex. Nobody, nobody ever talks about sex. You don't talk about sex. You know, it's considered um, shameful, embarrassing, you know, wrong. If you talk about it, it's more, you know, within the context of your own husband, you know, relationship, you're definitely not out in the open. So for them to come up with like a commercial and definitely, I mean, whoever, I, I've never, even in, even in the American culture, to be honest, right? They don't really prioritize pleasure. I mean, only recently, I feel like people are talking more about pleasure. But, you know, a lot of times when we talk about sex or sex education um, here in the school systems, a lot of times it's about abstinence. It's uh, pathologizing sex, such as, you know, like, uh, don't get an STD, don't uh, become pregnant if you don't want to be pregnant, and, um, you know, be, beware of intimate partner violence. And all of those things are very, very important. And really, you know, the WHO takes a big initiative in it. And uh, only recently, I think it was in 2019, is when the WHO incorporated into their definition of um, what is important for sex education, did they incorporate the word pleasure. And and that's very recent, right? And so I think that what we see in our Islamic tradition is that pleasure was always prioritized, right? When we read, when we uh, read those books on um, what Habiba Kande has that book, and I'm sure there are several other books that talk about Islam and erotology. They talk about how the Prophet peace be upon him prioritized uh, women's pleasure and how really it's, you know, women have sexual rights and for women, they can even divorce if they are sexually unsatisfied in their marital relationship, you know, which is mind blowing if you think about it, because that was what, like 1400 years ago that that came about. So, you know, women were given all this sexual agency. And then, right, we see that as um, and I think mo a lot of these authors write this in their book is that, you know, when we have colonialism, then our sex positivity goes away and we start to incorporate those puritanical values of, you know, sex is wrong, it's dirty, it's shameful, you know, you don't talk about it. And so then we become like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, women start to lose their sexual agency. 
And so I think it's really important for us to understand our own history and see where we get our beliefs regarding sex and uh, whether or not those were passed down to us or whether those are something that, you know, we think about ourselves. And then to see how um, in Pakistan, how they view, um, and you know, of course, like you say, right, Pakistan is not a monolith, women, Muslim women are not monoliths. Um, so not everyone feels like this, but, um, you know, the backlash that uh, that company received in regard to its commercials about female pleasure and agency really, I think, reflects the attitude of the majority of the population in, uh, in Pakistan. What would you say? Yeah. No, you know, when I came across the book by Habiba Conde and I realized, and I think I somehow always knew that, but it's just like, like you said, it's, it's so shameful and no one will talk about it. And we're not educated in that way. So when I came across that book, I was like, oh yeah, you know what? Like, it made sense that sexuality is such an important part of being a human. Of course. Yeah. That, you know, your spirituality, your beliefs, all of that, your soul is connected to that. It's not like this thing that you do and it's separate from you what you are as a human. All of your humanness is encompassed and then sexuality is part of that. So I was really happy to read all of that in Habiba Conde's book. And I was just thinking how far... The, our culture has come from some of those traditional Islamic teachings. Those the emphasis on pleasure in the, at that time period was radical, and that somehow we've lost that and we've become uh, prudish. Like we don't want to, we don't want to talk about sex or even basic education. When I went to school, there was never even a full diagram of the body so that we could mm -hmm. understand the parts of our body. Sure. I remember I was in college when a friend of mine had a sister who went to medical school. And then she came and she was whispered in my in my ear one time in class that she said, do you know we have two separate holes, one for pee and one for blood? And my mouth fell open. I was like, what? You know, like even like basic education like that we don't have. And and the reason for that is, um, I think when they want a woman to be innocent, they don't only mean virginity or lack of experience. They also want you to be innocent in any carnal knowledge, any type of knowledge. It goes together because it, the culture has this view that if a woman has knowledge of these things, then it must be that she is not pure. She's not a good woman because she has all of this knowledge and then where did she get it from? It's not considered medical knowledge or it's not considered education. Knowledge in itself is seen as um, suspicious. So that innocence is part, like when you get married, you're not supposed to know anything. And, you know, like this is not in my research paper, but these are just some thoughts I have that it's not the, how women are not given access to knowledge is not accidental. 
I think it's by design because what does knowledge do, Sadaf? It empowers women. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Because if you mm -hmm. know something, then you know when it's not right or you know when it's wrong or it feel, doesn't feel good or if someone tries to manipulate you, your knowledge tells you that this is not right. Yeah. And um, when you don't have it, then you're at the mercy of your husband tells you something and then you have to take that as true because there's yeah. no other way for you to know anything. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. I hope it's okay to talk about that. Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. Um, this is when I was really young and there was a long gap after I did my 10th grade and matriculation and before college starts, there's almost like a year before your results come out. And uh, there was a lady in the neighborhood with whom I used to take some tuition when I was younger, and she had started a school. And she asked me if I would like to teach in her school. And I was just 16 at that time. And I said, okay, why not? I'll make some money. And there were a lot of older ladies there. I was really young. There were women who were married with children. And this one lady, she told me that you have to perform oral sex. Her husband told her that that's the only way she can have a baby. Wow. And she really believed that to be true. And I, I didn't think so, even though I, I didn't really know, but it didn't seem to, it didn't seem right. But she yeah. totally believed that. And I was like, okay, now looking back, like that story has stuck in my mind, even though it was like 35 years ago, that this is how you manipulate women. Because if we don't have information, then we become subject to whatever information is being fed to us. Because yeah. education equals empowerment. Absolutely. Which I'm not saying I have anything against oral sex, like, you know, but but do it oh, no. if you want to, not because you feel like this, I must, if I want to have a baby. Like, that's manipulation, and that's not okay. Yeah, no, I am. There are so many parts of that story that I'm actually very offended. <laughs> I'm really upset, and I'm trying to hold back. Um, no, I, absolutely. There are so many things that you stated that, you know, are just, <laughs> upsetting. But um, so first and foremost, I actually do want to clarify just for the viewers and the listeners out there that actually women have three holes. And that, you know, we have a urethra where we pee from, and a vagina that, um, you know, baby comes out of and also where the blood comes out of through the uterus, um, when we're menstruating, and of course, the rectum where we poop from. So definitely, there are three holes um, that women have. And I will tell you um, that I have patients that are, you know, women that have had children and things like that, that come to me that are shocked when I tell them they have three holes. And, um, you know, same thing, they thought that where they were peeing from was the same hole that their baby was coming out of and things like that. And these are, this is not specific to any type of ethnicity or race. These are, these are like women in general. So it's really unfortunate. And it really tells you that we are lacking in terms of just our basic anatomy and teaching women about their own bodies. I mean, I think that's first and foremost, right, is to learn about your own body and Really, I mean, you know, knowledge is power, right? And we hear that all the time. Knowledge is power. And and I think that, you know, one of my big motivations of starting up my own social media and this podcast and this and that is to empower women 
uh, about their own bodies and empower and educate. And I think that that is so, so important. And that the stories that you talk about and you just mentioned really are a case in point to this, right? I mean, think about it. A man right, telling his wife that the only way she can have a child is to perform oral sex on him. That's, that is really, really upsetting, right? I mean, there's so many things wrong in that statement in, a, in and of itself, but it just shows you the power, right? The power that he had or that he assumed in that relationship um, because he, and maybe who knows, maybe he even believed that, which is nonsense, but um, you know, that he held over his wife just so that, and we know that, and as you say, you know, in the Pakistani culture, being a mother is of the utmost importance, right? They hold that very high um, to be a mother. And so to hold that over his wife, you know, and in a very vulnerable um, situation where perhaps she wanted to have a child or where she really wants to be a mother and to tell her that the only way she can get that is by performing oral sex on him, you know, that that is just so wrong, yeah. <laughs> so wrong in so many ways. So, yeah. you know, but I think you bring up so many good points, right? And the fact that um, women in general are often uh, not allowed to go to school, right? And that they are tasked with staying at home and being the maternal caregiver, but also, um, you know, that in some families, if they don't have enough money, the education of the boy will take precedence over the education of the girl, even if the girl is very smart and you know shows a lot of potential. It doesn't matter. It will always be, in, especially in patriarchal societies, that it will always be the son or the boy who will get the preference in terms of in terms of education. Yeah, and um, you know this is more true. In rural, in Pakistan, there's such yeah. a big difference between urban versus rural. I yeah. feel like most of the children in urban areas do end up going to school, even girls. Yeah. But then there's, again, like a socioeconomic difference, right? Like there is so many levels in Pakistan where, you know, I went to school, uh, Mama Parsi Girls High School, which is one of the best schools in in Karachi, but I come from a very humble background. I think whatever whatever money my parents had, they put it in education, and that has been such a source of empowerment for me. But then there are people who are, you like the people who are really lower in in uh, socioeconomic status. Those girls don't have access to education because right. their moms go and work. And yeah. the older girls stay home and take care of the house and the younger children until they are at a certain age that then they go out and do the housework. Yeah. So, yeah. like, yes, education is empowerment, but I feel like it's until, like, our idea of femininity undergoes some kind of revision, it's difficult to incorporate a biology education as a general education for everyone because like i said i think people want to have control over that knowledge because they associate that with promiscuity mm. so i feel like our 
cultural understanding of what femininity is, what it is to be a good woman, like a pious woman, has to undergo some kind of revision. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so true, right? Like you don't see, at least I don't see, but I didn't, I didn't grow up in Pakistan. I grew up here in the U.S. And so I don't know. And that's why I think it's so important to have your point of view because you grew up in Pakistan. And so, you know, more in terms of what, you know, kids or people are taught regarding sex education, regarding their own bodies, you know, and, and what is the opportunity for, for women or let's say for people that want to learn or understand more about their bodies, I guess, you know, what is the opportunity for them is how do they go about learning about their bodies? You know, is there sex education in Pakistan? There isn't. Like I said, our biology books didn't even have diagrams of the reproductive organs or, you know, like there are rules against I guess, naked bodies in textbooks. So we are not really taught that. Wow. And maybe later on, medical students have that information, but it's not generally available. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a big gap of information. And I just didn't have any idea about my own body. Yeah, and I think, I think, but, you know, it's, it's so sad because I think that so many women feel that, right? And so many, even women here in the U.S. don't get that education. And but but there but the education and the information at least here is available, right? You have that sex education, and you know we could go in and start talking about sex education here in the United States. I mean, so basically, what happens is that you know each state receives funding, federal funding from the government to teach students about sex education. And so how that sex education is taught in the schools is really dependent on the district and how they fund their sex education and really what they want to teach. So for example, a state, let's say, that prohibits abortion will not teach as much about contraception. So you have in those states, you have them focusing on abstinence. Okay, so even if they are teaching the children anatomy, they're not giving them all the information. They're not really giving them as much information about contraception. And so they're talking mostly about abstinence. And then what we see is that those states end up being the states that have the most amount of unplanned pregnancies. Right. So clearly it's not working what we're doing. So we really need to think about the sex education that we're teaching to our children. We need to teach them not only about their bodies, about sexually transmitted infections, unplanned pregnancies, intimate partner violence, but we also need to teach them about pleasure. We need to teach them about consent. We need to teach them about having agency over their own sexuality and what that means and the ability to say no if they don't like something, if they don't want something, right? All of those things are so important and really gives a more comprehensive approach to sexual education as opposed to just focusing on abstinence or focusing on, you know, just prevention of diseases. It's really important to give everyone that knowledge so they can really advocate for themselves. And I'm a huge proponent of education about sexual agency and advocacy and consent and all of that because it's so, so 
important. And especially if we want to change the sex negativity that perhaps maybe we were raised with um, to more of a sex positive environment, then we really need to empower children and empower them with education. We can't you know, oftentimes I'll see people be very hesitant, like, oh, you know, we can't teach children X, Y, and Z. And my question is why? You know, what, what's going to happen? They're going to learn about it anyways. Isn't it better that they learn from their parents? Isn't it better that they learn from, you know, real science-backed, research-based, evidence-based you know, information as opposed to like hearsay or what they see on the media or what they see in porn or whatever, because all kids, they say that kids are exposed to porn as early as nine. So, you know, really it's very, very important and it behooves us as, you know, just individuals in society to really be that, you know, advocate for comprehensive sexual education because it's, it's so important. Yeah, and sex education is for the physical and mental health of both men and women. And uh. and all and not just, you know, gender I'm not trying to like reinforce gender binaries, but it's like for all genders. Sex yeah. education is for mental and physical health. Because yeah. um if we don't teach about consent, then that's going to then affect the mental health of you know, like from unwanted touching or the expectation that you can, that a husband doesn't have to ask for consent. Yeah. And um, um, the um, this is so hard to say, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. There's a lot of issues with little girls receiving unwanted touching. Right. Or I should, I shouldn't tons of, right. Yeah. I shouldn't even say little girls receiving. I should say men touching little girls. Yes. And yeah. it's a huge um, problem. Huge. It's a huge problem. And, and if we are always having this idea of shame around this topic, then we can't talk about it in a way. And this affects not just like our mental health, but also relationships, right? Yeah, there has yeah. to be this talking and trust in a relationship that, it, in some ways, a woman always ha is is you know physically weaker than a man. So it's not it's not the same if a man, she has to feel safe. Her safety is priority. Yeah, and um, these things are not automatic. These things have to be taught. Nothing is automatic. Right. But, so nice. these things have people, we need education on this. And um, especially like when we go back to sexuality in Pakistan, there's so much of there is like this um, masculinity ideal is always like, oh, you know, that's encouraged in boys, but women need to be innocent. But then that creates more of like a power disparity in relationships. Yeah. And I was like telling you about this woman who thinks that her husband has all of this knowledge and that only way she can have status in the world is if she's a mother. So she has to perform whatever sexual act that he will ask for because she can be manipulated from lack of knowledge. 
Yeah. So like all of these things affect not only girls, but also our partners, like girls and women, but also our partners. Because um, if boys are exposed to porn as early as middle school, they have a certain idea of female sexuality that is not real. And then that creates loneliness for them. So like sex education is not only for pleasure, although I'm a proponent of pleasure, but it's also like the overall well-being of people. It's sex is not something that's separate from our well-being. It's just like we teach people how to eat healthy. Yeah. And we yeah. teach people to exercise because that's important for our physical and mental well-being. And sex is also a part of our health. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, I um, I recently did a, a TED talk and I did a TEDx talk and that was my whole premise is that sexual health is a part of a person's overall health and really is important for physicians to advocate, but really for people as well, you know, when they have questions about their sexual health to go and speak to their providers. I think that there's so much in what you said, you know, that I think I feel like we could record another podcast episode, but in terms of, you know, women and little girls being, you know, um, I don't know if I want to say sexually assaulted, but abused, right? And molested when they're young. And then those little girls don't have the proper terminology to advocate for themselves. And they're scared because they think that it's something they did and something that, you know, perhaps they, um, you know, perhaps that perpetrator tells them that it's something that, you know, they encouraged or they liked or something like that. And then, you know, they grow up and they have this mental trauma, right, about the sexual trauma about what happened to them. And so then they think that, you know, of course, not only will they have sex negativity, but how they feel about their body and then the body shaming. And then, you know, there's just so much about how they'll go and feel about their own bodies, right? Maybe they'll feel like they're broken or maybe they'll feel like they're dirty because something like this happened to them and they were molested when they were young. You know, I mean, there's just, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of problems in our society. So I think that what we, you know, what I would like to maybe say is that it's really important for perhaps, you know, whoever's listening, the viewers and the listeners out there to really advocate for comprehensive sexual education and to learn for themselves about, um, you know, sex and the anatomy. And I will tell you that, you know, I was having, um, the podcast people that helped me record and his name is Alan and his wife, Melissa, and they were helping me to go over all of the most downloaded episodes. And one of them was um, the female anatomy, right? Because people are really curious and they don't get that and they don't know. And uh, if you, you know, like what you're saying is that if those images are uh, restricted in books and so they don't, if people don't have access to books and they don't have access to the knowledge, then it just becomes this huge mystery and they just don't know. And then in their mind, they think like, wow, this must be really wrong what I'm looking up, right? Like this is wrong, this is dirty and I shouldn't know this, but I want to know this because I don't know what the hell's going on with my body, right? Yeah. And so, I think that we really need to get rid of the taboo. I think we need to get rid of the mystery and just empower people to learn yeah. about themselves, learn about their bodies, learn what yeah. they like, what they don't like, so that they can advocate for themselves. And, and it's, you know, like it's not antithetical to being a Muslim, which is what I'm trying to emphasize that Islam has all of this discussion and talks about sexuality, about what a woman's sexual rights and, um, 
the responsibilities of the of the husband and all of this information was openly shared and the prophet muhammad used to talk about it with yeah. his with the followers so why is there suddenly this um, idea of shame around sexuality which it's not appropriate and it's harmful and it's mostly harmful to girls and women yeah. we need to know about it we need to know what the body looks like what the things are called what the body parts are called when i was growing up the body parts were referred to as shame shame oh my gosh it wasn't we didn't even have like words for it and, and there's so um, much behind that right <laughs> and then uh, what is appropriate touching what is inappropriate touching i needed to know that because i can tell you Sadaf, in every girl's life there's at least one creepy man uncle neighbor some family friend there is somebody creepy in a little girl's life and we and girls need to be taught what is appropriate touching what is not appropriate touching this is not sex education is not only for sex as pleasure but it's the overall health and well-being of of people so there just needs to be this awareness that we can talk about it it's not shameful knowledge of sex and body sexual organs and sexual health is there's nothing shameful it doesn't mean that if i teach it i'm promiscuous if i know it i'm promiscuous information is needed so that we can act accordingly and it's the our culture has somehow developed this idea that knowledge of sex means you are not innocent or pure the yeah. pure girls don't know anything you're supposed to be like completely innocent not only of experience but also any information about it yeah. and i feel like that's not that's not innocent that's not there is like uh i'm very suspicious of that <laughs> yeah yeah you know, I think that you bring up so many things and I think um, I'll definitely have to have you on again <laughs> because I think we need to go over all these things that you brought up. And absolutely, I think, you know, our next episode will have to be on how do we change this, right? How do we change the narrative? How does this, how do we work for this change? Because it's so important for uh, women and men and, you know, everyone to know about their own bodies and to be able to advocate. And, you know, you you know, you mentioned little girls um, and a creepy uncle or whatever, but I would say that, yes, girls being molested, but also boys, little boys yeah. being molested as well, right? And yeah. and not being, and not having the language to say what it is that's happening to them because of the, you know, ingrained sex negativity, but also about the shame and the embarrassment and like, you know, what would so-and-so say? What would the community say if you told them that this happened to you? You know, we don't talk about it. We don't do anything about it, you know, so uh, whatever. I mean, like, it's just, there's so much of that hushing that goes on, right? And the, the silence only makes it worse. Yes, because yes. it allows the perpetrator to get away. They know that the family is going to stay quiet about this because they don't want the shame of like, what will people say? So yeah. it empowers the perpetrator and we need to break all of these silences. Yes. I have a lot of thoughts on <laughs> how we can go around about changing the culture. Pakistani mm -hmm. dramas have a lot of power in changing the psychology and the narrative of people because so many people watch it and they all watch the same one. So some That's of that awareness always so comes true. with like arts and culture, you know, like arts will always somehow lead the change. And then it just 
gets to the point where the laws will automatically change because people have gone through this change within themselves. It's difficult to change the laws when people haven't gone through that evolution in their own thinking. So, yeah, um, it really, um, I feel like there's so much work that needs to be done. And I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast in which you are making all of this information transparent and available to people who are seeking it and in a very like objective way that this is about empowerment, it's your education. We're not giving advice. We're not telling you what to do or what not to do with your life. We're just giving people information that's empowering in itself. Yeah, thank you. I'm, you know, I think that it's really, really important to do that. And I, you know, I see what you're saying. I mean, in terms of, you know, next steps and what we can do. I mean, there's so much. And I think that that we're going to have to keep the listeners listening and uh, do another episode, right? Then we're going to have to come back and, um, and schedule another talk where we can talk about um, how we can help to improve the culture and uh, empower more people so that they can learn about their bodies. But, you know, I am just so grateful that you came on. And as we wrap up, um, I'm sure there are people that are listening and watching and wondering like, wow, her work is so amazing. And this is what I've been thinking the whole time. I mean, I know when I read your work, I was like, wow, I really need to talk to her. I mean, I literally from (laughs) the moment that I saw that paper, I was like, oh my God, this woman is writing papers on, you know, Pakistani feminism. And I've never you know, not that I've been researching that field, but I haven't seen anyone write anything. And um, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to have this woman on my podcast, you know, to talk about this because this is something that I think is so important. So how can people get in touch with you? How can, um, if they have any questions, you know, reach out. I don't know if you have a social media platform. How can they reach out if they're interested? Um, I have a website where I post my papers. They're not all up there. But my website is like right now redirected to an academia.edu where I post some of my papers. And my website is just my name, sakinajangbar.com. Okay. And if they want, people want to email me for information or if they want to collaborate on something, my email is jangbars at stjohns.edu. That's fantastic. Well, I am so grateful that you came on and discussed this really important topic. And we know that that there are a lot of issues. <laughs> Thank you so much that- for inviting me. I want my research to leave the academic circles and be more available and accessible to people. I feel like podcasts is one of the way we can make academic work available. So that is, you know, it's supposed to make a difference. It's not supposed to just stay in the academia. Right, right. So no, but thank you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing and for the research you're putting out there. You know, people like me really appreciate it. So thank you so much. And well, I am done here. And this has been real and really intimate. And if you have any questions again about your health or your religion, make sure you follow up with the people that can help you the most. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends and thanks for listening.